0: Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Joining me tonight are two of our regular, irregular panel. First, 3MA founder, Troy Goodfellow. Troy, welcome to the show.
1: It is always good to be back in the number two chair.
0: And next, we welcome back our pal, Dr. Bruce Garrick. Bruce, good to have you back. Yeah, hello gamers. Oh, that is appropriate because that is the sort of accent that I want to hear during a game of Twilight Struggle. Uh, And that brings us to our final guest today. Uh, Today we are joined by Ananda Gupta, lead designer on XCOM Enemy Within. Thanks. Good to be here. It's great to have you, and uh, I am so glad that XCOM uh, gave us an excuse not just to talk about XCOM some more, but to finally talk to you in particular, who has designed some of the Three Moves Ahead canon. Uh, if you will, uh, you also worked on a game that I think Troy and I are oddly obsessed with, uh, A Force More Powerful.
2: Yeah, that's uh, that's 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 starting to get uh, into the into the mists of time. But yeah, uh, that was one that was actually my
0: very first gig as as a lead designer in uh, video game industry. And then I think you also worked on a game that a number of us are obsessed with. And uh, if Julian Murdoch were here, he would be over the moon to talk to you because I think currently you're the designer of his favorite game, uh, Twilight Struggle.
2: Yeah, Twilight Struggle, 2005. I, I <laughs> is remember it that, that one long too. Ago? Yeah, yes, it came is. out
0: in you know, December 2005. Okay, well, it doesn't seem like that long ago, and ni- and and neither does a force more powerful. Damn it. That was, one of my, that was one of my first freelance uh, jobs writing about that, and let's not age me, okay? Um, it, that is, it was yesterday. Let's not even pretend it wasn't. Uh, you know, to, to start us off, uh, Ananda, let's just talk about XCOM Enemy Within, and for listeners who maybe haven't kept up with some of the previews that came out of Gamescom and such, uh, what are some of the changes that are happening with Enemy Within, and, you know, kind of give us the elevator pitch. Like, what, what's, what's new here?
2: With XCOM Enemy Within, we wanted to add, you know, we wanted to add a whole bunch of, of new stuff to the game. We like, as, you know, at Firaxis, we like to make these big expansion packs. Um, you know, we like to do, uh, you're familiar with our approach in Civ, with Gods and Kings, and with Brave New World. And so, you know, 2K, who's our publisher, uh, they, they wanted us to experiment with a couple of different approaches. And so we did some smaller DLC, um, but really, because of the kind of game that Firaxis likes to make uh we we've you know big expansion packs that sort of expand the scope broadly make the most sense and so I enemy within mean, and that's how enemy within was born and really um you know it, it came up you know the the idea the, the theme of enemy within um sort of suggested itself where i mean it's rare that you come up with a cool tagline and then and then develop a whole expansion pack or game out of it but but with enemy within that was mostly what happened where it was like well we we want to add um we we want uh, your soldiers who uh are taking the you know taking the front lines in this conflict uh we want to sort of bring them even further into the spotlight even you know even center them on the spotlight even more and so um we wanted to add additional elements in the game that in the tactical game that would let them really shine and so and 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 how do you do that well the answer of course is always giant robots so um <laughs> <laughs> and so and so uh, allowing you to build a, a cybernetics lab and a genetics lab and uh, giving your soldiers these, these really new ways of enhancing themselves, um, yet in a, in, a, in a sort of interesting enemy within kind of way, right? You know, it's not, it's not just now that you're, you're using armor and weapons that you've sort of adapted from the enemy. Um, you're, you're now taking their very genetic material into yourself and, and using it against them. And that's one of the central themes of XCOM, right? Is you know, at the beginning, you start out completely outclassed using, using sort of terrestrial technology and weaponry, and now... Now you are, uh, but gradually you capture a little bit of tech here and there, you do some research and then you're starting to use their their stuff against them. And this is taking that just another step. Um, and so the two major things that we added uh, were, this, you know, on the soldier side, were the cybernetic lab and the, uh, and the genetics lab. And that lets you get mech troopers, which are a new class. You know, we had four soldier classes uh, in the original game in Enemy Unknown. And now we have a fifth, which is the mech trooper. And um, the mech trooper has his own training tree, uh, and the suit itself is also customizable. Uh, you, as, as the suit techs up, you can, you can sort of pick new tactical subsystems like a flamethrower or uh, the, the very, it turned out very popular among the fans, the, uh, the, the kinetic strike module, which is uh, sci-fi talk for big rocket-powered fists that you punch people with, and, uh, and, and a bunch of other tactical subsystems that you can sort of fit on the, on the suit. And then the genetic modifications are more of a broad uh, approach. You know, they're they're cheaper, so you can probably get your whole squad gene-modded, but you probably won't be able to get your whole squad uh, into cybernetic suits. And the uh, the genetic mods um, give you these sort of otherworldly abilities based on on the autopsies you complete, since that's what unlocks them. Uh, and so that's that's like that, I think that's uh, that's the centerpiece of the tactical element. You know, we're. We added a lot of stuff to strategy as well, but at Gamescom and Pax, we talk mostly about uh, the tactical side, and so uh, those, those sort of soldier enhancements were really uh, the, the crown jewel of, of that layer.
0: Well, I really hope at some point in Enemy Within I hear the phrase, like, kaiju. I, I really... If it's going to be battling robots, <laughs> I, re- I, really want, I really want some kaiju action. We
2: were well into beta by the time I saw that movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Jaeger <laughs> you can you can rename people you can nickname somebody Jaeger if you want <laughs> um and so uh, obviously on the enemy side uh we we added um we've added we're adding a bunch of new enemies but the two we talked about uh, on the alien side were uh the mechtoid and I mean the mechtoid practically writes itself right you know which is the most the weakest alien the one that you kind of have some trouble with in the first month but after that you blow them away uh, you know, he, he's probably not too happy about that. So he comes back in a, in a cyber suit of his own. And, you know, the mechtoid, um, it, was a, it, was, it was an interesting design process because it originally started out as the mech muton. And, and then we were like, well, you know, the, mech, the muton doesn't make a lot of sense visually as, as a cyber unit. Um, and so which, which unit would really want this the most? And the answer is, yeah, the sectoid would jump at the chance. So, um, so the so the so the is a sectoid in a in a cyber suit with uh, big you know with twin linked plasma cannons and and a psionic shield that it can get if it if it gets mind merged by a, by another sectoid, um, which makes it really hard to kill, and it's a very bruising uh, powerful frontline unit that that uh, doesn't use cover. It's like a robot that way, um, and, uh, and and it can really melt your face um, <laughs> if you let it. And so. Uh the, the sectoid was just great fun to design because, uh, you know, aside from the fact that, you know, you can imagine the meeting, right, where once we decided not to do the muton, it was like, well, what about the mech sectoid? And then two seconds pass and send it, or the mectoid <laughs> and, um, and I think uh, that just let us do all sorts of fun stuff, you know, in terms of its tactical combo with the other sectoids because of the, the mind merge interaction. And uh, the fact that it's this sort of returning improved version of one of the uh, one of the existing enemies was great. Uh, and then we also added the Seeker, uh, which we announced at Pax. And the Seeker, um, the Seeker is this sort of flying tentacled horror uh, that uh, it's it's a robot, so it's not an organic tentacled horror. It's a cybernetic tentacled horror. And um, I, I got to say that really carefully. And uh, <laughs> and uh, the uh, the Seeker. Is our first stealth enemy, so it can you know when it's encountered, it'll it'll stealth, and then we we wrote some separate AI for it, so it'll it really it really prefers not to engage you head on, but it'll you know one of them might come in right away, but the other one will kind of hang back and wait and wait for you to find some other aliens maybe, and then when you're busy with them, it'll come in and strangle your sniper, and uh, and strangling is what it wants to do most.
0: That's actually something I wanted to get to a little bit is that. You know, like I, I, don't know, I don't know about uh, you guys, but I. It always seemed to me like the XCOM Battlefield was kind of a very, um, uh, a bit of not not necessarily a confined space, but a very delicately balanced one. Uh, you know, there, were, there, were, each each map had had places and roles for the different sorts of units, uh, and each map was sort of constructed to take advantage of uh, of what they did. Um, and I'm just I'm interested to think about like how these guys will change up, uh, you know, change that battlefield, uh, and whether how easily they'll fit in alongside sort of the uh, XCOM dynamics and tactics that we, we know from the previous game.
2: Yeah, I mean, we definitely wanted to add uh, some wrinkles there, and I mean, frankly, with the seeker, my hope is that it makes the battlefield scarier. You know, we we wanted to 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 make sh- to try to our best to get uh, a horror a horror element back in, and um, you know, I mean, XCOM can be a scary game, especially during those terror missions with the chrysalids lurking wherever and and, and the zombies that kind of lumber out of the darkness, ready to ready to uh, spawn new chrysalids, um, but. There's nothing quite like an invisible enemy that strangles you, <laughs> that uh, that 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 evokes some horror. And so, um, but but it's it's almost more of a reaction to the existing tactics that players have. I mean, you know, when we I mean we started out we knew snipers were good. They're kind of the carry class of XCOM, but we didn't. I mean, but snipers are very are are have a, have fallen into a pattern uh, in 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 terms of how players use them. And so yeah we're definitely going to try to design some new enemies that will uh, disrupt those patterns and the seeker is definitely aimed at that. Um, now I mean there's a lot of counterplay of course, uh, you know snipers have battle scanner uh, as one of their possible abilities and battle scanners do bust stealth so um, snipers themselves have a built-in means of, of, of avoiding uh, a horrible uh, strangle death. But. Um, but yeah, we definitely wanted to, to sort of mutate the uh, the tactical gameplay a little, and um, and with the Mechtoid, um, I think the the Mechtoid was less about role in tactics as a whole, uh, you know, because we have high firepower units, we have high, you know, we have high high defense units, you know, uh, high durability units. But with the Mechtoid, we definitely wanted to bring in this um, this very powerful. Uh, unit that nonetheless comboed interestingly and and sort of explicitly with uh, the other units uh, and, and in this case the sectoid mind merge which players understand pretty well you know you see the mind merge you know the target got some bonuses but you also know if you kill the caster uh, in the case of the basic mind merge that the target dies now. If you kill the caster of a of a mind merge on a sect on a mechtoid, then the mechtoid doesn't die. That would be too easy. But it is it is a good way to to, to chip away at him. It's a good way to get a head start on killing him. And so, um, in that you know, in, in the former case, yeah, we definitely wanted to change the character of the battlefield. In the mechtoid's case, we wanted to add some new tactical combos without really changing the nature of how combat works. Well,
0: I'm excited to hear that because. Uh... You know, as much as I loved XCOM uh, Enemy Unknown, I did start to feel, and I'd be interested to hear uh, what you think about this, uh, Troy or Bruce, but I sort of felt like by the end I kind of had my standard operating procedure d- down. Like, I had a style and set of tactics and a build that I like to use, and it would see me through most things, and it did start to feel a little a little bit rote for me there by the end.
3: Oh, I mean, I think that uh, when you have a game that's, designed to be that kind of tight interaction of, of systems the way that XCOM is. I mean, I think that that's kind of what you're going to end up with and I'm, I'm not, I mean, I didn't find that disappointing. I mean, you, you, I've only played through the game one and a half times and, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, I think that that's plenty <laughs> frankly, it's plenty of times for me to play the game, but, um, you know, I, I love to have, my. you know, I think part of the fact that people, things get sort of stereotyped, stereotyped or rote is that um, you know, the role-playing element, I mean, I, I just really like heavy weapons guys. And uh, so therefore, I'm going to kind of build my tactics around them. And um, and, and that's, not, that's not, nothing to do with the game. It's just to do with my certain play style. So, uh, I mean, I, I, I don't think that having a, um, a game that has a tactical element that you play through uh, and then doesn't play completely differently the second time through is, is I mean, it's not, I don't find that... Uh, disappointing or unexpected.
1: Yeah, I'm kind of with Bruce. With Bruce. I mean, I, I've i played through it probably three or four times because I really, really liked uh, trying some new things and trying some new tactics, but generally it did break down into having the same sorts of builds, following the same paths the the way through. I'm more of a assault trooper person. I'm not a heavy weapon. I have one heavy weapons guy and a couple of assault troopers and a medic and a flying sniper uh, if, I can, if I can manage. Uh, but generally, that would be a type of thing that would see me pretty much all the way through, and the maps would repeat uh, generally. So, I'm looking forward to seeing the new maps you develop for Enemy Within because the first time you see a new map is one of the most exciting parts uh, in the XCOM games. It's when all of your the tactical awareness and tactical things you've learned in all the previous maps you now have to be put in an entirely new environment. I mean, there's only so many uh, car pileups. Uh, you can play through before they start looking like every other traffic jam in the 401 here in Toronto. Uh, but you know, the prospect—the uh, first time I saw uh, you know, the library scene in the first XCOM, you think of the library or a bookstore? Or
2: yeah, something. it was a bookstore. Yeah, um,
1: that was all those levels and the stairs and just trying to figure out where do I do I go, do I even have enough men? I mean, at first I thought, wait a minute five is my maximum squad size right because I'm gonna need eight to cover this place properly so there's just going to be tons of casualties just learning how to perfect that map all the way through' so a lot of my repetition through the game was just trying to find the perfect way to solve the tactical puzzles uh, of the maps but I mean, so I'm with both Bruce and rob I, I there were regular patterns I keep falling into but with really this isn't a problem when you think of how XCOM is structured within itself, within each campaign. It is about a squad solving a tactical problem. And if you've already solved the tactical problem in playthrough two, the problem's not going to change in playthrough four. Uh, that's, yeah. just not, that's just how the game is built. So this, doesn't, this isn't a problem.
2: Yeah. As a designer, you know, you have to you have to make a, a choice, whether it's explicit or not, between do we do we compel different playstyles or do we enable different playstyles and yeah. with xcom we we definitely made a conscious choice that we wanted to enable different playstyles and so as you can see bruce has his his heavy his his heavy trooper centric strategy and there are assault strategies there you know there, there's double sniper double support strategies there's and, and i think i think we definitely succeeded at um, at enabling uh, different different playstyles but some players enjoy the challenge of um, of, of having a, a, a different playstyle forced upon them, and I think um, that's and, and so making that the default behavior in a game is very dangerous because I think uh, part of the, you know a lot of people derive the fun from games from sort of finding the pattern that they're comfortable with and then and then uh, you know running that running that algorithm uh, in their heads uh, over and over until it's perfect like you like uh, Troy was talking about with the uh, w- w- with solving the tactical puzzle, but. That doesn't mean that we can't have archaic and eat it too. So in Enemy Within, for example, we have introduced a new second wave option which you can activate called Training Roulette. Training Roulette causes all of your classes to have all of your soldiers to have random skill trees. And so what this does, and that's uh, that's not completely random because, uh, you know, we have class locked weapons, and so abilities that are tied to a weapon are obviously still locked to that class. So no class but heavy will ever have fire rocket, for example. But for abilities that don't have that dependency on your having a certain class-locked weapon, um, those are then scrambled between all the skill trees. And this is done on a soldier-by-soldier basis, not even a class-by-class basis. So two assaults won't be the same in in XCOM Enemy Within, should you choose to activate this. So for players like Rob, who want to experience XCOM with a different set of constraints, just check that box.
0: Yeah, definitely... I'm definitely really interested to see how the how the battlefield changes once these uh, new units and uh, new enemies are are deployed. Uh, just because it will be really interesting to see, like, well, for instance, like having something out there that's hunting snipers, for instance, will be a pretty effective counter to the overwatch uh, you know where you know in, in the original game that that sniper was, was, was like you know the finger of God reaching out to strike down aliens yes. uh, which was pretty awesome reach out and uh, touch someone yeah but mm-hmm. he also just hung back for the entire uh, battle and you know you
2: yeah if you do that with if if you do that with live seekers on the map that's that's not not super safe anymore.
0: Now, one of the other aspects of this game, or at least hinted at in the trailers and some of the previews I read, is that maybe uh, there might be a little bit of trouble in uh, Council Paradise or XCOM Paradise and I'm just curious what kind of... Uh, I mean, the game is called Enemy Within. I- I'm kind of curious what that's alluding to and whether there will be you know, gameplay manifestations of it.
2: Uh, it is definitely alluding to something. <laughs> um... I know we're looking forward to making more announcements about that, uh, but yeah, that was a great tease in that trailer. Um, I think uh, the, the, what I'm, uh, you know, what 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 I can say about that is that um, we the nature of XCOM is very much a strategy and a tactical layer that interact with one another, and you know, at Gamescom and Pax, we focused on that tactical layer. But there is no way that we would publish an expansion that didn't enhance both. Um, and so, yes, there is definitely going to be a new strategy layer ta- uh, strategy layer gameplay, um, and uh, yeah, I'm uh, I'm really I'm I'm looking forward to being able to talk about that. <laughs> but for now, you know nothing. For now, I know nothing.
0: And I just assume that Jake Solomon is continuing to honor the original XCOM by producing an underwater sequel, right?
2: Uh, it's it's it is it's terror. I don't know if it's from the deep. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, actually, you know, I mean, Jake and I have had conversations about that. Like, uh, Jake doesn't, Jake's not a fan of Terror from the Deep. I'm not really either. Um, I, I love the Lovecraftiness of it, but, um, I would, if I wanted to make XCOM Lovecraft, I would make XCOM Lovecraft. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't make it something that is both. Um, and, you know, I'm a big fan of Charles Strauss's uh, Laundry Files books, uh, you know, uh, where uh, – I don't know if you guys are familiar with, uh, with, with no, those. Not, but, no, i not. Tell us about them. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, The Laundry Files is a series by Charles Strauss who's a pretty uh, – you know, a, a sort of uh, hard science fiction uh, author. But he also works for the British Civil Service in IT and so he also knows of bureaucratic horror. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and The Laundry Files are books about both – supernatural and bureaucratic horror. Um in his books uh the the nature of the old ones and of the the sort of uh existential threats to the universe is mathematical and based in physics, right? So none of them are actually magic magic, but you have these, you know, these entropy causing creatures. You have uh you know if this, the, 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 there's this government agency that is devoted to making sure that people stay away from the wrong algorithms. Uh, you know (laughs) you you put a well i mean yeah you know resolving you know if you code up these algorithms and put them into a screensaver you could you know your your monitor could become a gate um and so uh i I, you know i love uh, it's the first book's called the atrocity archives which is actually i think a collection of the first two publications that he did in that in that in the laundry files and it's it's great fun um but uh uh jake's point and i think and i agree with him is that Terror from the deep, with some exceptions, is taking place in the you know it takes place in the ocean, in it, which is itself a very alien environment. And um, part of the fun and the and the thrill of XCOM is that the Sectoids are in the fast food restaurant and the gas station uh, and on the farm. And um, putting them in the ocean detracts from that a little because the ocean is is hostile to us too, uh, and it's more it's more. It's closer to home that if the aliens are are in the uh, are, are in everyday sorts of locations now um, obviously in Terror from the deep the aliens did you know they raided resorts and the cruise ships and uh, and harbors and so forth and those were you know those those, those made a lot of sense and were fun um, except the cruise ships which took forever <laughs> yeah. um, but, uh, I think, um, but I think but I think that's a that that is a good thematic. You know, there are solid thematic grounds for really kind of looking askance at doing a reboot of Terror from the Deep. Uh, at least from our point of view, of course. If another studio attempted a Terror from the Deep re- remake, I would play the hell out of it. Um, <laughs> uh, or they would
0: get a cease and desist letter <laughs> from your employers.
2: Well, we didn't do that. You know, we didn't do that with Xenonauts, right? I mean, that's um, uh, true. Yeah, 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 I was kidding. But <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, uh, yeah. You know, it's funny you mention that though, because I mean, it's been so gratifying since XCOM came out to. See the revival of interest in turn based tactics, and you know, to see Massive Chalice, uh, and to see Incognita and other other games that are in development that have uh, taken some inspiration from XCOM. And, uh, you know, I mean, there's we love that, we'd love that.
0: <laughs> well, you know, I was sort of surprised when I heard that you were making, uh, you know, XCOM Enemy Within just because. Well, in part, I guess I, I, I'd lost track of the fact you you were at uh, for, uh, for Access at all. Uh, but it just seemed to me like it was. It, it just seems like such a shift from, you know, some of your earlier work, uh, which were. Well, I, I think A Force More Powerful is an incredibly high concept uh, PC strategy game. Uh, and, and then you've got. Twilight Struggle, which I, I think you know, you could argue is just one of the best uh, card-driven strategy games uh, ever made. And I, I'd just be interested to hear you talk about sort of the different design challenges between, like, what you're doing here, sort of expanding on another game, another design, uh, versus what you were doing when you were when you were sort of like you know starting from a blank from a blank slate for something like Force More Powerful or uh, the Twilight Struggle.
2: Yeah. Um, so, Force More Powerful was was very daunting uh, in terms of its scope and in terms of the the, 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 the vastness and blankness of the canvas. Um, you know, I was uh, I was very young at the time that I was uh, that I got the reins uh, on, on on a Force More Powerful, and um, you know, I had some you know, I had I had more oversight on it than I probably would
0: have. That was a, that was like a charity, not a charity foundation, but it it was like a peace studies center that, that funded that entire effort, right? Yeah.
2: Yeah. It was, it was sort of an academic outfit. Um, It wasn't, I mean, it wasn't a university or anything, but it was, it was a, it was Peter Ackerman's group. Um, uh, And you know, it's been so long, I even forget the, their, their exact name, but, uh, and they had a lot of academic contacts and, and yeah, I mean, they, they definitely, you know, they definitely wanted, um, something that was pretty special, and uh, you know, at the time, um, you know, you always look back on what you've done, and, and I, you know, I think with a force more powerful, we we did something that was very ambitious, um, and you know, we had a lot of there were a lot of a lot of challenges involved in in, in, the, in the production of that game, and yet I think we came out with something that, at minimum, was 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 useful. Uh, for the analysis of the kinds of problems that they wanted to that they wanted to to uh, analyze, you know that they wanted it to shed to help them shed light on, and um, developing a force more powerful, of course, just in, opened up all sorts of interesting questions about you know okay, well, is this educational software? What is educational software? What's the best way to make it? But this is also a game. You know, I mean, we had serious discussions about what's the role of fun in this game. You know, and I mean, you can imagine what my what my view was, right? But somebody had a different view of that? Um, There was definitely some 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 argument that um, that players would have a have a deeper a, a deeper uh, threshold of uh, they, you know, they would be willing to climb a higher curve.
3: It needed um, to be it needed to be more uh, they need
2: to get it needs to be good for them rather than yes. fun for them. Yes. There was definitely, that view was definitely expressed. My, I mean, my, my view on games is, uh, always is, is that first of all, if it's not fun, nobody's going to play it. Um, and so it doesn't matter uh, how good it is for them. <laughs> um, you know, but, but secondly, uh, you know, fun, fun comes from solving problems and interesting decisions and patterns. And, and, and those are the, those are the most, if those are present, in a way that's accessible, then they'll learn, and um, how we, you know, if if the the realism of the simulation or of the analysis uh, portion detracts from that, then it's it's self undermining. And those were very, you know, those were very interesting and and sort of uh, and, and sort of passionate discussions that occurred. And um, you know, I, I was I was pretty young at the time. I was uh, I was I think I was twenty six when I when I uh, when I Started working on a force more powerful, maybe even younger, and and um, and so you know, of course, full of full of fire and <laughs> full of blood and fire, and and um, that was uh, and, and so working on a force more powerful, I think you know, I, I learned a lot about process and about design, but I also learned something that I'm appreciating still now, which is um, being a good game designer is in some ways. You know, I mean, you have to build the encyclopedia of mechanics in your head. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I didn't have that encyclopedia, uh, or rather that encyclopedia wasn't as big back then as it is now. And, I've, you know, I, I just look back and say, wow, you know, if I would played any of Volkerunka's coin games, <laughs> you know, which didn't exist at the time, if I played in Abyss uh, when I was designing A Force More Powerful, oh boy, there would have been some differences in A Force More Powerful.
3: <laughs> now, which side, which side of the fun or good for you line do you think the game fell on? ultimately
2: um i think ultimately uh i I think ultimately it fell more on the good for you side um i think we were not able to deliver fully on either side because of how many scenarios we needed to make (laughs) Mm -hmm. and so each individual scenario was not polished to the level that we would have wanted it to deliver on either of those goals um Mm -hmm. but uh but i think in general um the the sort of top level direction tended to be um, tended to be less about this is a fun and immer you know this is this this is I mean it was it was couched in different terms you know like oh we wanted to be immersive not necessarily fun I'm like well who wants to be immersed in something that's not fun I mean right. you can watch reality TV about that but hmm. that's <laughs> you know uh, which also didn't exist at the time of uh, Force More Powerful I suppose but. Um, <laughs> But uh, maybe Survivor might have been in season two. But um, uh, you know, with a I mean, with a force more powerful, you know, there was there was a lot of there was a lot of uh, discussion about who is the target audience for this and how much how much guidance can we how much self guidance can we expect them to provide and, and so forth. And, um, and who was the target audience in the end? Um, I think in, in the end, it was primarily students and activists. Uh, you know, okay. there, was, there was this idea that, that academics would be part of it. But ultimately, academics, uh, I think the problem is that no matter how many levers and knobs you give academics to uh, tools, you know, the more tools – academics like, some, like a simulation if they can tweak it to fit their pet theory. And um, in order to let a lot of academics tweak a simulation to fit their pet theory, you have to give a lot of knobs. Mm-hmm. And the more knobs you give, the harder it is to learn how to do the tweaking,
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, which makes it in ex- makes it less accessible for any given academic. So that became that was a little self defeating.
3: Um, well, I mean that explains a lot from from my standpoint because I, I, I thought that it, it didn't quite give gamers what they were looking for, um, but that also now makes perfect sense.
2: Yeah, um, I mean, with you know. Yeah, I mean, the idea that gamers were not necessarily part, like the idea is that the, the idea that the audience would not be gamers was a very interesting conceit, mm-hmm. because on the one hand, non-gamers might be more willing to play a game that is not about a traditional gaming topic, but right. on the on the and because of the interest that you know they're sort of self-filtering into. But on the other hand, non-gamers need a lot more help playing playing games, and if you have this very complicated game with a lot of different options then non-gamers are much more likely to just go I'm completely I'm completely baffled by this you know you know one one interesting design meeting on on uh, a force more powerful was sort of well how many options should the player have at the beginning of the game you know I mean if 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 we're saying you know here's the scenario here's what you're trying to accomplish um how many options should they have there was a school of thought On the team that said that they should have all of the options because that's what a real realistically, you know, that's what they would have. They would, you know, you would be able to do almost anything. The question is how successful could you be and how much do we, you know, and I, you know, I was, I was thinking more along the lines of we kind of grade it up. We on ramp it so that you know, there are a few things you can do at the beginning and then that kind of trees out in spirals and by the end you have the full menu. Um, But the idea was the idea that dominated was that we should have the full menu at the beginning. Um, and, uh, because that is, because part of the, part of what the, the game was intended to accomplish was to narrow down those, uh, was that the player themselves, player himself or herself would narrow down those choices. There was even some debate as to, I mean, do the scenarios have objectives? I mean, is that something we want the player to figure out what the objectives ought to be, uh, to define their own success? You know, is, I mean, do you even win? Like a, a scenario and a force more powerful I mean, or do you get to declare victory when, whenever you feel like it? Um, because it's not a game game that was kind of on the table, um, and as you may recall, we kind of ended up with a little sort of hybrid approach there. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it was it was it, it, it's very it was hard. It, it posed a lot of interesting challenges, and to relate that to XCOM, you know, to just to, 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 so first of all, I mean, designing an expansion pack, you know, expansion packs are inherently, I think inherently easier design problems than designing any kind of uh, initial launch of a, of, a, of a title, even if it's not the first in a series. Um, expansion packs, uh, you know, they really let you, you know, you, people have played the game already to a certain extent, um, you know, depending on how your scheduling goes. So you can, you can choose to sort of Bolster elements that you felt were lacking in the original game. Maybe um, you can uh, thematically explore stuff that you didn't have time to explore in the original um, or you can just take stuff further. And, you know, in, in Enemy Within, we decided to do kind of a mixture of all of those things. Right. So, you know, there, like we were never going to put gene mods into the original game because there was enough there was enough stuff for the soldier, the player to learn about their soldiers. But now they now they understand the soldier system so they can learn more, you know. Um, you know in terms of strategy gameplay again well, you know I'm l- we're looking forward to more announcements about that but there were there were there are definitely some things in the strategy game that we thought well we can we can add on or we can uh, we, we can add on a, a sort of different kind of choice uh, that that maybe complements the strategy better um, the strategy layer better and then there was also just a bunch of stuff that we decided you know players want more maps okay we can do more maps <laughs> you know we can do we, we can we can make a bunch more maps. Um, and, yeah, you know, there are little things like the voices, you know, the fact that all the soldiers sound American was something that we kind of knew that people would get annoyed about. We didn't realize they would get as annoyed as they did. And so when we did the expansion, it was like, well, let's, uh, let's unlock all the localized voices. So now soldier language is a customization option and you can pick that. You can, you can have all your soldiers speaking different languages. Um, and so, yeah, so, so, so designing an expansion pack is, is a lot easier in general than designing a, uh. A uh, a title from scratch, and I mean that's um, yeah, it's pretty obvious. But, uh, but yeah, going from a force, you know, starting starting out my career with a force more powerful, and then going on going on to uh, to this this that that is definitely you know I was well prepared. <laughs> I was well prepared.
0: Now, Troy, I remember um, you know one of the first pieces that I remember uh, reading by you uh, was um, a story you did for the Escapist on a, a force more powerful. Uh, and I think you ran into some of the same things I did, which is that, you know, the, the interesting thing the interesting thing about The Force More Powerful is uh, a lot of times when you were doing really, really well and things were really cooking along, the regime would just kind of massacre you. And uh, I think that's kind of what happened in, in, in the experience you wrote about.
1: Yeah, it's been so long since I remember that. Piece. I, I think I interviewed uh, Ananda for that um, many, yeah, long... many, many years ago. Yeah. Um, and it was... A uh, Force of course, Powerful kind of sticks with me for a number of reasons, and I, part of it is because I, you know, I have a degree in political science. I did teach high school, and this whole idea of you know games as teaching tools is something that I keep coming back to. People keep asking me, you know, what games can I use in my classroom, and it's never easy. And this Force of course, Powerful kind of sticks out because it was constantly designed to be an interesting game with interesting decisions that wasn't, you know, hammering your head with, you have to do this, you have to do this. You had to figure out what the optimal solution was. And almost always the optimal solution was, make damn sure that you have people doing things, <laughs> and, you a good or- and you have a good organization, and you're not wasting person power. That's uh, pretty much what it came down to. And organization was really the one lesson. That kept, um, if, if activists got anything out of the game, it was, please make sure you're organized, and you don't try to ad hoc this, and everything's planned and out there. But it does, it does run into the problem that a lot of you know edu- either consciously designed educational software does, or commercial games people want to use uh, in their classrooms, which is the lead time it takes to teach this thing. Because one of the big problems with A Force my Powerful was the UI was, you know, it was the. You could tell the game was designed to run on kind of lower power systems that activists might have, uh, in the yep. second world or in Eastern Europe. Was was not designed as a high powered, you know, realistic simulation. It was the kind of thing you would stick on an iPad today, I yep. guess, more more or less. Absolutely. Um, but that did mean that the UI was kind of stretched and kind of limited. We were digging deep into menus, um, and making notes, and there was a lot of ad hocness about it. Now hearing some about the bureaucratical stuff, bureaucratic debates over where the game should go, a lot of this makes sense. Like this whole notes section that I really never use. I mean, why am I making notes in this game? Shouldn't I be able to find things quite easily? But all oh, the notes sections there so that you can make reminders for yourself, which makes sense if you're an activist, less so if you're a game player. Um, I really liked the idea that this was it was a game about confronting evil and confronting, you know, corruption, and you didn't have a gun. Right. And this was just such a neat idea. It's a kind of problem-solving game uh, that I love. It's, it's kind of a, a nice, pure-type game, because it's about systems and understanding and trying to solve a problem. But the Gordian knot-cutter of almost all game design, which is raise an army and kick some ass, is taken from you.
2: Yep, it's not there. <laughs> it's,
1: which I, And I guess that's one reason why this game kind of holds a bit of a lingering appeal to me like I, I bring it up so often in the show because it does have this um, it, it makes you do everything the long way and there aren't any shortcuts really in the game
0: yeah uh, and
2: and it is possible to get yourself very screwed in the game oh yeah. and that's yeah I mean it, and that's just kind of how it goes you know there aren't and, and you
1: don't know often this is you know the, the, the feedback isn't always there which I guess is kind of historically accurate. Uh, as we like to say, sometimes tongue in cheek on this show, uh, but the lack of how well am I doing? I don't know. When was my screw up? Is there a mole in my group? Can I trust? I, I just bribed this radio guy to join my channel. Will the government bribe him back? Um, where does? Are? Is the international outreach working? I really don't know. How long does it take for me to know if it's working?
2: Yeah. Um, they're, they're, yeah, and we were trying to me mi- and you know, we tried to mimic a lot of the uncertainty that's in this, and of course, yeah, gamers are sometimes not super comfortable with that.
0: Part of it was I- intended as sort of a yeah, a, a, not just a teaching tool, but also to some extent a training tool. I remember the game actually yeah. came with like sort of your um, nonviolent uh, revolutionary uh, you know toolkit, you yeah, know, notebook. Here's yeah. how you create an action plan. Uh, you have to decide on your objectives, which was. Uh, a really interesting thing, actually, and something I'd be interested to see more games experiment with: this idea that there are a dozen outcomes, policy outcomes that you might prefer uh, that might be good, desirable, but you can't pursue all of them. So you kind of have to figure out what your strategy is going to be, what what is going to be, a, what what yeah. an acceptable level, level of victory is. That is
2: something. I, I mean that that is one of the central tensions that exist in real life activist groups. Um, which is that the larger the, and, I mean, and political parties. You know, the larger the coalition you build, the more powerful it will be, but the more diverse its interests, and thus the 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 weakness, and that will weaken its message. And you know, revolutionary, you know, uh, sort of reform movements um, really struggle with that, and that's something that that is something that Ackerman's group really wanted to emphasize in the game, which was, you know, look, you you, you cannot you cannot you know you have this meeting of people all of whom have a slightly different agenda the the resulting agenda has to be unified and and they all have to still be supporting it um you know and uh, and and that's 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 tough and that doesn't come that doesn't come around without strategy you know that requires strategy and frankly i wish i wish we'd been more explicit about that like i wish i I wish that um we had almost made the game more puzzle like Uh, and, um, you know, there there are a lot of different ways that that game that that, that, I, that idea can be tackled. Just like there are you know eight billion different ways you can accomplish you know the Battle of the Bulge, <laughs> but um, but and indeed there there may very well be that many published titles on the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, but uh, <laughs> so does that mean you would have made the game
3: more if you could do it over again? Does that mean you would have made it more? intricate or less? Would you have made it more abstract? Would you have used more um, of the encyclopedia of mechanics that you say you didn't have at the time?
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I, I think unquestionably, I would... I have a lot more tools in my toolbox now. Um, I, I think... Um, so, one of my one of my personal inspirations when I was working on, on A Force More Powerful was a game called Hidden Agenda. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of this game. Yeah. Um, and... Hidden agenda was, is, is, have you, have you played it a lot? Ages ago. Yeah, that one, so that one's different because you're, 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 you're a newly elected president in a, um, in a, in a Central in a small Central American country a, in the 80s. And so you have, you, you know, you face enormous pressures um, and you have to chart a course that hopefully keeps you in power and lets you accomplish your agenda. And, and um, you know, you have all these interest groups uh, who are represented by individuals and, you know, you can go talk to them and then you get dialogue options that determine what you're going to do. And basically, you know, you can either make them happy or not, but they don't all agree with each other. You know, if you do land reform, that makes the campesinos help, help uh, happy, but it, it really uh, pisses off the, you know, the large landowners. And, you know, those two have different implications. Um, and, you know, in that game... There was no set of victory conditions, right? You, you know, you might succeed at different parts of your agenda. You might not. If you, you know, you might your goal might only be to stay in power, or it might not. Um, and it, it it did a really good job of showing the trade offs uh, in terms of building coalitions and keeping you know, and sort of uh, keeping all the all the all the plates spinning. Um, it didn't do a great job of. Em, you know of sort of emphasizing the importance of having a strategy which you know what's the uh, you know the old the old the old joke right uh you know according to sun tzu what's the first rule of strategy oh you got me there have one uh-huh. <laughs> okay <laughs> you know and it's amazing uh, a lot of people don't i mean you know uh, in in, the, in 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 ackerman's uh, experience with with activist groups a lot of them don't don't get that far <laughs> um and so uh You know, and and so I think if I were to do A Force More Powerful again, you know, I've learned a lot about mechanics, um, about how to give players options and interesting problems to solve without dictating to them what they're supposed to do while also making the problems manageable. Um, And I think uh, that's something that, yeah, I'd I'd love another crack at that, boy. (laughs) Um, And I mean, working on strategy games at Fraxis, you know, XCOM... XCOM is a game of very wide scope, um, and there, of course, you know, there is no doubt of what we're trying to do. I mean, we're trying to make a game that is, I mean, it's fairly hardcore, uh, in terms of the amount of, of different systems the player has to, has to kind of juggle and, 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 master, but, um, but it's also fundamentally, you know, it's a game about defeating an alien invasion, and so, uh... Right there, you have the clarity of, of, of the purpose. Of, of, you, you have great clarity of purpose.
0: Well, and all, yeah, and all your tools are so explicitly for a thing. Like Each you know each soldier ability has a purpose that you don't really require a great deal of insight to figure out. Like, oh, yeah, I should probably do this with this guy.
1: I don't know. What, what, what is that rocket launcher really for? <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. right. I don't know what's going to happen if I pull this trigger. Let's find such, out. Such nuance. <laughs> uh, yeah, where yeah, whereas uh a lot of times figuring out exactly what was going on in Force More Powerful uh, was kind of tricky. I will say, uh, you know, to to, to wrap it up and maybe move on the uh Twilight Struggle, the, the 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 ironic reaction I came away from Force More Powerful with in some ways was uh one, maybe don't try to be a nonviolent revolutionary because the odds are very good you're going to be in jail or executed. Like that was that was one of the signal warnings of that game was, hey, be real careful because once they know your name, they're gonna come after you. Uh, yeah, yeah, it depends on the regime, but yeah. And the other part of it was there were a lot of moments where I was like, you know what, this revolutionary movement really might benefit from is a targeted killing. <laughs> like it was there were so many moments where it was like okay so like the police chief's just gotta go like everyone in the police force like is on side and the chief is just like holding gumming up the works and I can't do anything about it so um I need a special operations crew uh, so that
2: was that was one of the most intense debates of all
0: oh my gosh so this was actually debated
2: which was do we let you become non you know do we let you abandon non-violence um, you know we let you do everything else, right? If we don't even let you define your own objectives, um, so, and we give you this enormous panoply of options, are it seems arbitrary to exclude um, violent options. And in particular, um, what better way to teach the value of a nonviolent approach than by... Uh, you know, I mean, because because Gene Sharp and all the other theoretical, you know, the theoreticians of this of this stuff have, I mean, I think pretty good, clear, lucid reasoning as to why in general violent tactics cause more problems down the road than they're worth. Surely we can model that and um, and let the let the game teach the player why it's not good to give into those temptations Um And, uh, and so, you know, that that raged. Um, And ultimately, where we ended up was that it was okay, if you had certain, like, if you tried to bring violent groups into your coalition, that was okay, because you can't, I mean, at that point, if we don't let you do that, then that that just becomes, you know, very historical, you know, I mean, a lot of a lot of nonviolent movements succeed in part because they manage to moderate the, the the more violent tendencies of some of the of some of their coalition members and, and bring them bring them into line you know i mean the, the u.s civil rights movement uh had, had 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 a lot of that in it and so um you know where where basically a lot of people say well you know i, I don't think we're going to get anywhere without violence but this dr king guy appears to know what he's talking about so let's give it a shot you know and um, and um and so we decided that it was okay to bring violent groups in, but if you didn't do a good job of maintaining their coalition status and so forth, then they might do stuff without you telling them to. And, and that would be bad. That was where we ended up. And, um, I think that was pretty much the right decision. So, but yes, that was, that was a heavy, that was, that, that was, that was something that, that got discussed quite a bit.
0: Well, I'll still be holding up then for my Michael Collins, uh, strategy. Game. <laughs> yeah. Uh- so, I definitely though wanted to talk about uh, a Twilight Struggle, and you know, to start to start us out, you know, Bruce, I'd love it if you you know talk a little bit about the game, and maybe just you know, the, we, you know, Troy and I did an entire show on why the Cold War is tricky to get right. Uh, Bruce, well, why why does Twilight Struggle succeed so well? Uh, boy, so we we're going to do another show on
3: this. <laughs> So, because that's, I mean, I I think it's how long it would take. Now, I think that, you know, it's it's hard to say exactly why anybody in particular plays games, but I think that uh, people who play this kind of game, this particular type of board game that has these historical, uh, you know, hooks and currents in them, um, plays it partly for the sense of place. And,. You know, I always thought that um, the the mechanic of using cards with events on them that, you know, I know goes way back to the early 90s. Um, I guess, I'm not sure when you would, if you were going to do sort of a um, genealogical tree of gaming, I think uh, Mark Herman would Are get we some... We the People. Yeah, We the People, exactly. Um, but, I mean, I think that... And, and, and the, the game for me that really sort of showed how transformative that mechanic was was Paths of Glory because um, Ted Racer basically proved that you could have a, a, a conflict which nobody really could effectively make interesting in any way. Uh, just they, they tried in all sorts of different ways. Uh, the Avalon Hill game Guns of August, I remember, Uh, basically decided they just make a whole bunch of counters and if you just made a few of them move then then the game may be interesting but it was not um and ted racer just showed look just break it down to some basic elements but then layer on top this um the, the the flavor which you could describe as vividly as you wanted as long as it fit on that card and then you had to make the the card fit the gameplay and of course that's a lot easier said than done i mean that's why ted racer is a uh, you know, a very talented designer and, uh, you know, many other people are not. But uh, I think what uh, Ananda did with um, with Twilight Struggle is he perfectly captured that kind of sort of the zeitgeist of the, of the Cold War and then each individual card and the choice of cards. Um, I mean, there were so many possible things that you could put on there. And the juxtaposition of the historical events... You know, with 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 each other, right? I mean, you have the um, sort of the communist uh, uh, insurgencies in uh, the third world, and then you have sort of the democratic insurgency in Eastern Europe, and the sort of the way that the the game sort of sets up these chapters. Um, and then I thought the space race thing was just freaking brilliant. I mean, that that really uh, sort of tied everything together with this perfect bow, which is that you know this. In a sense, was about the United States versus the Soviet Union, and uh, no, you know, no matter what you know, Charles De Gaulle card you're going to play, uh, you know, it really was uh, <clears throat> sort of this, this these two uh, different ideologies that were trying to trying to almost uh, you know the, the pinnacle of achievement would be to get to the moon, and oh, by the way, it's a great t- uh, mechanic for trying to discard cards that you don't want, so. Uh, Sort of wrapping all this up together, um, and using that, you know. And I, we did a show with Martin Wallace um, a while back, and he said, you know, hey, you know, the best mechanics are the ones that I got from other people. Uh, it's not really the me- thinking of the mechanics themselves. I mean, the, the mechanics are all out there, kind of. It's mm. it's putting them together in a in a way uh, that does what you want it to do in your game. I think that that's basically what Twilight Struggle did. I mean, there's just the perfect amount of of. Uh, you know, historical setting, the flavor conveyed by the cards, and the and the fairly simple mechanics that were still um, that still set up uh, decisions very well. You know, you had to decide whether you're going to play the card for the ops, for the event, whether you know with a coup's. Uh, I thought the coup the coup um, uh, mechanic was a really very just just a, a brilliant way of of of, of um, you know distilling things down to elements that were recognizable yet con- yet contained in a simple die roll with right. some modifiers that that made the whole thing make sense. So um, the uh, the the game. I mean, still, I think it's still my favorite card driven game. And I know a lot of that has to do with uh, Tom Chick and I have argued about this because he loves uh, he thinks Labyrinth is, is. I mean, he doesn't think Labyrinth Labyrinth is his favorite. Uh, card-driven game, but he thinks that it's a it's a it's a better game than Twilight Struggle just because of the asymmetry, uh, because asymmetry in his mind, I think. And I'm just going to speak for him since he can't defend himself. Wow! But, uh, he feels that asymmetry is uh, is a is inherently better. Um, but I think that the, the the way that this perfectly captures uh, the sort of the Cold War um, considerations and makes it playable in you know a, a long afternoon. Uh, is is really a, it's I mean it's, I think it's a real s- kind of signature achievement in gaming, and I think all people who are designing games about things that they're interested in should think should they, they need to know Twilight Struggle.
1: But it's not that there's no asymmetry in Twilight Struggle. There's all kinds of asymmetry in Twilight Struggle, but it's based. Uh, well, it's not all yeah. kinds, but it's kind of based in the turns, right? I mean, it's, as you get into the uh, towards the end of the cold end of the Cold War, you know, the Soviets kind of have to brack up a pretty good lead. In the first couple of eras.
3: Well, I mean, in everything, I mean, every game is asymmetric, even chess, right? Because somebody has to move first, right? But I mean, the. the, well, but, the but
1: just with whole... the, the cards play, the way the cards are structured, I think that the Soviets have weaker cards.
3: Oh in the, yeah, lower, lower I in the game. So
1: I would uh, argue that's I'm that's talking the, about
3: asymmetry, fundamental asymmetry of mechanics which yeah, which
2: was right. yeah, yeah, the, yeah, Labyrinth. the menu yeah. Right, the menu of the menu of options in Labyrinth. S- certainly is, Labyrinth is, yeah.
1: is, is much different. But yeah, I mean it's it's, it, the color is just so I mean it, it is pro- I think it's one of my favorite um, card-based games and I think the flavor uh, is is a, a big part of it. Um, the there's always this tension when I play because I want to play a really cool event because it's a really cool event. Uh, because hey, this is history happening, or do I save the points? And the fact that I You're want right. to, the fact that I want to play a cool event instead of playing the points, which is kind of stupid from a gameplay perspective, but it's sort of so I guess how well uh, the game does make you feel like you are living or trying to live through uh, five pretty important decades. It,
2: yeah, that, I mean, with Twilight Struggle, you know, one of the great sources of appeal for Twilight Struggle, I think, is that so many of the people, so many of the cards have personal resonance for people. You know, at conventions, people will show me the Pershing, you know, I, I signed somebody's Pershing Missiles card because that was the card that he helped, you know, that he helped work on the real-life Pershing Missiles, and so... He wanted you know he wanted me to sign the card and I, there, I've had that that story has many different ver- versions in terms of, of which events are the most important personally to people, so I definitely think there is a sort of nostalgia and and personal attachment thing there, um but you know I mean Jason and I uh, so again this is what I mean we started designing Twilight Struggle in uh, probably two thousand two, um, mm-hmm. and you know I was again I was a young and then I was twenty five, <laughs> and. Um, and we, you know, we, we designed it because we basically said, you know, card-driven games are really fun, but they're headed in the wrong direction, you know. They, um, they're they becoming more complex, and they're leveraging the, the awesomeness of the cards uh, less. You know, the whole idea of, the whole good thing about cards, as Bruce said, is that they let you they let you put in these great, you know, if, if it weren't for the cards, you'd have this rule book that's 50 pages long describing all the situations that the cards are supposed to handle, but hey here's here in, in i i'm i'm learning the rules of the game while i'm playing it because i'm looking at what my cards do and i'm watching my card my opponent play cards and so and so we wanted to we, we said you know we're going to make a game that takes it back in the direction of we the people of simplistic uh, you know not simplistic of simplicity of of mechanics and of really leaning on the cards to do to do the complex stuff um and then it's like, well, what topic should we do? Well, the Spanish Civil War is really complicated, and neither of us knows much about it right now. We'd have to do a lot of reading. Plus, there's this dude who's already doing it. So how about we do the Cold War? <laughs> mm-hmm. And okay. um, and uh, and it's like, oh yeah, there aren't really any, any 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 great Cold War games that jump to mind. You know, there's the Victory Games uh, four-player Cold War game that was not asymmetric at all. Which we wanted to go to. We definitely wanted to have an asymmetric game, um, although. Uh, not in the, not in the same sense as, as Labyrinth, uh, of course. Uh, uh, but, um, uh, but then, yeah, so, you know, we, we decided that was what we wanted to, you know, we wanted to try to tackle that. And, and Jason, of course, uh, my co-designer on 12 Struggle, he, he, um, he was very historically familiar with it. Um, you know, being a Capitol Hill guy and being, a, an American history, uh, uh, nut and i you know i I of course was uh, the the type of history buff that a wargamer is at that age you know sort of an omnivore um but i I didn't have the depth of knowledge uh of of either american or cold war history that jason had and so we kind of fell into this natural division of labor where he he was the historical authority and i did the mechanics um and so uh and that worked out really well (laughs) um but uh you know it's it's interesting um we were hoping that one of the lessons that Twilight Struggle would teach was that card-driven games ne- need to get shorter and simpler, and not longer and more complex. And that is not what has happened. <laughs> uh, uh, that's not to say that um, uh, now I think I think Volko's uh, coin games and, and Labyrinth are very welcome, and they are they do not represent that uh, the continuation of what I see to be that negative trend. Not that these are bad games, like not not that Clash of Monarchs or uh you know certainly not here i stand or any of these other games that are that are incredibly good games but that you know take that that are kind of an event to play if you to pardon the pun um but uh we you know jason and i wanted to make a game that uh people with families and 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 not very much spare time could uh, could still play in a, in a in a in a reasonable manner um without having to make special time for it and so um and so when he and i decided on our next project uh You know, which is sorely delayed because of, uh, you know, well, when I was working in my previous job, before I came to Firaxis, I worked at uh, Zenimax Online, uh, on on the Elder Scrolls Online. And uh, they have terms in their employment agreement which prohibit side projects. And so I was unable to really work on any board games while I was there. Um, But 2K uh, is, is much better about that. And so uh, I've been able to resume on board games. And, and, uh, you know, so we, we, we chose a new topic. Um, we chose a topic, uh, France versus England in the 18th century, you know, another titanic struggle of two great powers, uh, that takes place along a lot of different dimensions. And that poses all sorts of interesting challenges that are like the ones in Twilight Struggle, you know, that one's got, that's, that's, you know, twice the length of Twilight Struggle in terms of number of years covered and it's got four major wars <laughs> and that's not even counting the wars of the revolution uh you know the the wars of the first second and third coalition um and uh and so uh but uh you know this we're hoping once again to to get it uh, to to get a game that is uh that is short and accessible and yet nonetheless conveys the flavor in the way that kind of that bruce kind of described
0: that is really cool. That uh, there's more in that vein that we can look forward to. I was unaware that you were working on a uh, th- on a follow up to that. Yeah, uh, it's fantastic we're able to do that alongside uh, building the next expansion for XCOM.
2: Yeah, um, it's great to be able to do both. Um, you know, working on XCOM. So I mean, you know, I worked, I came to Foraxis when XCOM was about seven months ahead of alpha. And, uh, you know, so a lot of decisions have already been made, but uh, I was able to contribute heavily, I think, and obviously working on the expansion as the lead designer has been tremendously rewarding to work with this team. Um, but there's still a fundamental difference, uh, you know, even as the lead designer, you know, one, one makes compromises and one uh, one has, you know, there, there's the, the process of deciding things creatively is very complicated, whereas if you're working on a board game, it's like, gee, I think I want it to be like this, Okay. It's like this now, <laughs> and um, so so working on board games on the side has been a very you know it's a great creative outlet where, you know I can indulge all of my dictatorial impulses, <laughs> and there's only one other person I have to I have to sell, <laughs> whereas on, uh, on 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 a big uh, epic scope computer game like uh, like like XCOM, um, you know it's it's very much a it's much more of a, a of a steering a large cruise liner. <laughs> What's,
3: do you guys have picked out a name for your new game?
2: Yes, uh, it is Imperial Struggle. Uh, mm. Imperial Struggle, the, the, the global rivalry between England and France from 1697
0: to 1789. Oh. Okay, so it seems like it would just be so easy to just reskin um, Twilight Struggle. And I'm not sure a guy like me would even necessarily complain about that, you know. If it was like, you know, we all have our favorite era of history, right? Like I'm sure if you came with a Twilight Struggle for Roman times, like Troy would just be, you know, emptying his his bank account uh, to 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 get that on his table. Have
2: you played Have you played Hegemony yet?
0: Uh, no, I have I have not. Why? Well, uh, hegemony is Hegemony is Twilight Struggle between Athens and Sparta. Uh. Oh. oh God! No, really? Or, really? Yeah. What's it called? I got. I wrote a hundred sixty-page thesis on the outbreak of that war. Yeah, you'll.
1: Actually, uh, I should probably buy that, Rob.
0: Where is yeah. it? Yeah. Let me find
1: it. You might it. be up here for your next visit.
2: Hegemony. But. But Polis. where? Where is going it's, with no, that? No, sorry. Though, it's called Polis. Polis. Fight for the hegemony. Okay. Good. Okay. Uh. Yeah.
0: But where I was going with that is—is is, it, it seems like it'd just be an easy thing to be like, okay, look, it's—it's it's Twilight Struggle, different map. Uh, here's some different flavored uh, events to evoke the theme. Period. Done. Uh, you know, and you know, for a lot, I think for a lot of us that work, uh, do you do you find like one? Do you find yourself resisting uh, the the resisting how easy it would be just to sort of translate Twilight Circle to a different era? And then, what kind of new new twists and wrinkles does? Uh, you know the imperial competition between England and France introduced that maybe we're lacking in uh, Twilight Struggle.
2: Well, um, you know, I, I mean, so, so yeah, like I, I like to design two player games because they're easier to test, <laughs> um, and because, and and moreover, I think the net amount of fun in two player games is higher. Right? In a two player game, you have one winner, and one loser, and in a multiplayer game, you have one winner and many losers, which means which means the uh, <laughs> the total number of people who who, who didn't win is high and. Is, is higher on average, <laughs> you know? And so, um, uh, and, and so looking for good topics on two player games, um, you know, there, th- there aren't actually all that many great struggles between titanic powers. <laughs> um, you know, the, 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 sort of multipolar, uh, situation is more common in, in, in real life history. Um, especially for the scope that we, you know, if you're talking about global or continental scope. And so, um, and so the, I mean, the biggest difference between imperial struggle and twilight struggle is that, uh, you know, in, 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 in the era of imperial struggle and what some historians call the second hundred years war, um, there is a, th- those two powers openly fought each other four times, um, which is something the US and the Soviets never really did. Um, you know, the closest, you know, they came Afghanistan, you know, but I mean, even then there was a lot of care taken to make sure that no literal Russian bullets ended up in literal American Marines. Um, and, uh, you know, cause ha- had that happened, you know, we might not all be having this podcast. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but, but in, in, in the 18th century, uh, the, there was open warfare between those two powers and abstracting out warfare, especially for those occasions, um, could not be done in Imperial Struggle. Um, and the, the other thing about Imperial Struggle that makes it pretty different from Twilight Struggle, makes it, made it pretty necessary to have, um, to have a different, uh, you know, a, a different kind of approach to it is, um, you know, the, 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 the nature of the competition um, was, I think, you know, in some senses it was the same where, you know, you're both competing for global prestige and for glory, but, um, but it wasn't really ideological so much. Uh, and it was, you know, it was just more sort of abstract proto-nationalism. And, and um, it was, it was much more about, um, it was much more about who is, who, who does the rest of the world look to in an, in a, in a soft sense. Um, And, you know, where, of course, some of that was going on in the the Cold War, I think the Cold War was much more fundamentally about, it was much more about fundamentally different ideas. Whereas, while contemporaries of of Britain and France might think that, you know, I don't don't think that was really the best way to game it. Um, So, you know, the fact that we had to, you know, we have to, we have to have a cool system for for making, for simulating four four major wars uh, without making the game take forever to play... um, And then the 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 very different activities of the two powers uh, in in imperial struggle, I think, make it a pretty bad fit for Twilight Struggle's core mechanics. Um, You know, one of the things, one of the core mechanics of Twilight Struggle that's the most specific to the Cold War is the is the hidden scoring cards. The fact that the scoring cards come up, you know, in your hand, and you know, you, you might the 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 blessing of right. the, the blessing of knowing that they're going to happen is balanced by the curse that the the card itself is kind of useless, um, and, and that you have to play it, and that you have to play it, it's and a, that when
1: you and when you're playing it, the other guy knows whether you might have, might know if you have the scoring card. Right, the fact that he doesn't
2: have it means that either you have it or neither of you has it, and
1: and every action you take is read through the prism of does he have the scoring card
2: right and that can be used by expert players very effectively yeah um, but it can also you know it can also be used by novice players to shoot themselves in the foot and so um and, and that is a very that that is a mechanic that came up uh you know about halfway through the design of twilight struggle when we were you know when, when we were like this this is this game is not conveying the mentality of the cold war well enough um how can we how can we do that and you know uh i'm proud to say i came up with that mechanic and and, uh, you know, it's like, what if it were history of the world? You know, it's, it's history of the world, but you don't know when anything's going to happen. <laughs> you know, like in history of the world, you have this very historical uh, appreciation of the different areas. You know, Northern Europe kind of starts out completely worthless and then get it, by the end of the game is the most is the most valuable area on the board for no reason other than that's just because that's how that's that's how the, 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 the empires work. Um And I was like, well, what if it were more arbitrary than that? What if it's just like, hey, Africa is going to be important this turn. Why? We don't know. (laughs) But somebody drew it, so it's important. And he might the and, you know, sitting there without it, you're like, well, my opponent's doing something there, so it must be important. I better go and stop him. (laughs) And and that seemed to capture a a pretty interesting Cold War dynamic.
0: Yeah, I'm just thinking to, you know, my memories of Twilight Struggle. I think one of the things that I really love is just how... Uh, the different stages of the Cold War have these really distinct flavors, like the, 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 the scene of the action changes uh, w- with each sort of generational shift in the war. Yeah. And uh, it's just one of those things that it, it just evolves so wonderfully. I think it's, it's why I, I, I tend to prefer it uh, now significantly more than, uh, say, 1960 Making of a President. Not just because I am just crap at Making of a President. Um, I like I cannot get uh, either of those jerks elected to save my life. Uh, <laughs> he was totally unbalanced towards Nixon. <laughs> well, it doesn't it doesn't seem to matter uh, for me. Uh, the, you know, I am apparently the worst campaign manager in history, but I'm a pretty good cold warrior. Uh, I don't know what that says about me, but you know, with with with, ni- with Twilight Struggle, I do I, I I love the way that the latter stages there's this wonderful uncertainty of first of all, like when's this game going to end. Uh, it just, you know, you, you, it could happen at any moment. Uh, and, and then it just seems like the, the politics themselves are just getting more volatile uh, toward the end there as well in just some really fascinating ways.
2: Yeah, I, I think something that we, you know, we didn't design for this, but when it kind of started happening when we were playing it, it it, it headed that way in a very pleasing way, which was, um, you know, areas start to get locked down a little, you know, because of the DEF CON chart and because... People have accumulated, you know, players have accumulated a lot of influence in different places, so it can be, you know, the, the, the sort of, s- the, the, the space of available action is a little narrow, and so players start getting increasingly desperate, <laughs> and they, they start getting increasingly willing to take risks, and, and I think, yeah, I think that captures some, some interesting stuff in the late Cold War, where, um, you know, you really start looking for the smallest possible advantage, and then of course certain events in the late Cold War can be very, very transformative, and you know if you can chain them or combo them to take good advantage, then you can really you can really tip the balance in your favor. And of course, war games, you know, which is the most controversial card in Twilight Struggle, probably, um, you know, which is our prevent the the end of time problem. Um, you know, you, n- you never know exactly. You know, you can't you can't just sit on a lead and wait out for final scoring because what if uh, you know what, what if what if your opponent holds war games. Um, you know, that, that, of course, causes a lot of rage among players, but it's a very necessary part of the deck. And uh, and I think it really encapsulates... Um, Do you want to explain that to our listeners who might not quite get that? Oh, yeah. So, so War Wargame is, Games is a card where um, if the margin of victory is below a certain level, um, then it ends the game prematurely and uh, uh, in the other player's favor. and so um, And so it's, you know, because we have these random scoring cards in the deck and um we have these random scoring cards in the deck and uh and you don't know when they're going to come up but you do know if they have come up and so you know when they've all come up uh and so and then you know there's going to be no more scoring until the the end of the game um we needed something to stop players from just sort of trenching 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 um and so uh if your margin of victory is big enough um then you can play war games and uh if, if your margin of victory is big enough then you can play war games and just end it right there and win. Um, and that's uh you know that 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 will stop players from saying, "Well, I have to till the rest of the game till uh, to to under to, to chip away at this lead, chip away at the enemy lead."
3: Have you ever played uh Pax Britannica?
2: Yes, Pax Britannica.
3: <laughs> what do you, how, does that I was just, when you were talking about the, the new game that you're coming up with, the, the France versus Britain, It's there's a, that game is sort of, uh, I feel like it's everybody versus Britain. Um, yes, yes, because
2: uh, that game's happened when Britain already won. <laughs>
3: right, yeah, well, well, and, and, and and America hadn't won yet. Right,
2: right. right. But, uh, I but, mean, with, with PA- so PAX obviously is a different time, right? Because that's 1880 right. yep. to 1912-ish, and so... Um, yeah, I mean, with Pax with, with, with Britannica, which again, you know, I affectionately call Tax Britannica because, I mean, even among your friends, it's like doing your taxes. Um, you, you know, the, the age of colonialism and imperialism is very interesting to me. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, but again, my bias my bias in favor of, of designing two-player games is, um, you know, is pretty telling there. I, I, I would love to do a game about that period, about the mm-hmm. Scramble for Africa and about uh you know the other expansion you know the, the other colonial struggles you know mm-hmm. central asia and so forth uh but um but i feel like the most interesting part of that game which is the fact that it ends when world war one begins and that happens when you know the 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 wars spread between two countries you know when you have two when you have two alliances and the, and those alliances are of a certain minimum size that triggers the end of the game because that's mm-hmm. world war one mm-hmm. um I feel like that's the, the one of the most clever and interesting bits of that game, and um, and I would just rather make a game about that. <laughs> about what? About-, about about preventing the march to World War One, or you know, about some, something about how you know about these something much more high level about the alliance system that led to World War One.
3: I mean, just because you want to do a two player game, or because I mean, there's what? No, what's the, if
2: I, I don't think that game could work two players. No,
3: no, it definitely couldn't. But I mean, say, the, the, I mean, there's uh, also, uh, played, uh, what was it called, Origins of World War II? Yeah, it's an old yeah. Avalon Hill game. I mean, yeah. there are all these, there are all these games about, you know, sort of, uh, su- you know, p- uh, great power interaction and 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 trying to prevent things from happening. But I, I never. I found have a, that.
2: I mean, I have a, I have a game design in my head for, um. I have a game in my head for, uh, you know, between two fires, right. The, uh, uh, Europe from 1920 to 1938 and mm-hmm. or 1939. And that's another, you're yeah, right. That's, that's basically origins of world war two, but starting earlier. Right. Um, I mean the main, the main problem with that to me is something is, is perhaps just general squeamishness about giving a player, a Kristallnacht card that they get to mm. play. You know, I'm, I'm okay. just, I'm, I'm just uncomfortable with that. Hmm. That's um, interesting. Yeah. Um, Think, because you,
3: because plenty of players have uh, first SS Panzer Division counters.
2: Yeah, yeah, um, and you know I'm familiar with the sort of wargaming black and white counters debate that that started years ago, and I don't know if it's over yet. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, I, I do think there's a different. I mean, I do think there's a di- regardless of the of, of the of of whether of the aesthetics question as to whether like having a different color scheme for SS units glorifies the SS, mm-hmm. on which I, I make no statement. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do feel that the kind of game that I like to design, which is putting you at the top, putting you at the policymaker position, mm-hmm. is sort of qualitatively different than putting you in Rommel's position. Mm. And, um, you know, and to, to tie this back to XCOM, you know, uh, we, you know, you're in the position of the commander. All your, all your decisions, you know, all the decisions are yours. Um, if you want to fire a rocket to save this, you know, to, to, to kill those chrysalids and there's a civilian there, we don't stop you. We don't tell you you're right or wrong. You're mm-hmm. judged purely based on the results. All
3: right.
2: Um, and, you know, and, and on your own self evaluation of it. Um, I, you know, and, and so, in, and I'm comfortable with that in a video game, you know, because we can, we can give you these options that, that let you uh, put whatever interpretation on the situation that you want. But in a historical game, there's a lot of freight there <laughs> and uh yeah and, and so um it, you know if you have a game where there's a, ger- a german player who's attempting to preserve hitler's coalition and and preserve his grip on power um and, and, and that involves all the meaning you know all all the all the actions that he took i'm just you know i'm, I'm just you know in video games we talk a lot about player fantasy Right, like, mm-hmm. what is the player fantasy in this game? You know, and um, I'm just not super comfortable with giving people tools to realize that particular player fantasy.
3: No, I, um, I, I yeah, certainly so. hear where you're coming from. It would be, um, yeah, it, it's a, it's a completely. Uh, I mean, I guess it's this is that's time for another. Uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's that's a big topic kind of for another discussion which we could have for.
1: And and we'd love to have you back for that. I think.
3: Yeah, yeah, that'd to. be great. We could I'd be we happy could, to. Uh, gone about that stuff
2: um, but but uh, go on please
0: well no just because I know we're running a bit long on time so we should probably begin uh, winding it down uh, although I could honestly listen to you and Bruce talk about board games uh, for another hour easily <laughs> um, because you've both played a lot of games that I will ne- I will likely never play and have never heard of uh, so it's, it's interesting to hear you guys go through uh, basically comparing vinyl collections it sounds like yeah <laughs> <laughs> want to take you to the complete strategist and uh, go shopping with you guys oh yeah that's it yeah is that place still does that place still exist it's so oh, totally yeah. still exists i was there yeah. like oh, last year it was amazing
1: oh, wow. the, 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 the one in new york's a lot of fun it's just the aisles are like a foot wide
2: mm.
1: it's, they're impossible to walk down it's great
2: that's funny well, when are we going to see the struggle game now
3: because i'm now i'm intrigued
2: um, well, I've got a lot of, you know, I, I, I definitely, I showed it at uh, to, to people at WBC, uh, mm-hmm. the World Board Gaming Championships in August, and that was uh, that was a lot of fun to play with a bunch of people who, you know, had, had uh, never played it and had no no reason to to snow to snow me about how good it was, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know the returns on that were really positive, so I'm I'm feeling good about it. Um, it it definitely needs some more mechanics work uh, and some you know some it's a lot of good feedback to implement. And um, obviously, right now, I'm pretty busy with XCOM, and XCOM is is my first priority. Um, but once you know, once uh, Enemy Within, once you guys are all happily playing Enemy Within and, 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 and telling, t- telling everyone how awesome it is, um, I'll be free to, uh, or at least freer to spend some more spare time on, uh, on on Imperial Struggle. And I'm I'm really hoping, I'm really hoping that it can be on GMT's list sometime next year. I'm really hoping for
0: that. I honestly don't know which I'm more excited for. Uh, to be honest, I'm, I'm unfortunately I don't have to choose. I don't think I can. I can. I can get both. Uh, uh, yeah,
2: they definitely scratch different itches. And I mean, I think with Enemy Within, you know, particularly once we finish making our announcements and it really kind of laying bare the enormous amount of stuff that we are adding to XCOM. I mean, we are making an an XCOM experience that is pretty epic on both levels. Um, you know, I think XCOM players will be, will will, will have a lot to a lot to play through, uh, especially when, again with some of these options, you know, these sort of game options we've put in with, like training roulette. I really feel like that almost makes the game roguelike in terms of its replayability. Um, you know, with the random classes. Um, so, suffice it to say that I think you'll have plenty to play uh, until Imperial Struggle comes out.
3: <laughs> Excellent. Uh,
0: you know, just as. You know, because this just occurred to me, uh, but it's it's my Columbo one last thing uh, question. But, you, you know, talking so much about two-player strategy games and such, um, you know, first of all, you going to do anything different with multiplayer in uh, Enemy Within, and just as a thought experiment, like, if you want to maybe get more of a deeper beyond just, like, the, the one-off, like, squad deathmatch thing, uh, what might you do? Uh, like want to do if you if you had your druthers with like XCOM multiplayer
2: well we are supporting XCOM multiplayer in enemy within we're adding all the new all the new units mm-hmm. so you got your gene mods and your mechs and your mectoids and your seekers plus some more stuff which we'll be talking about and then we're also adding a lot of new multiplayer maps we're adding uh eight new multiplayer maps uh and you know enemy unknown ship with five so that's uh, that's a pretty big increase um and then we're, we also added some more supporting features like offline squad editing, so now you can kind of manipulate your squads uh, a little a little better offline. You know, you don't have to hurry through in the lobby so much, uh, and that's that's nice. Um, for multiplayer in XCOM, um, you know, if I could, if I had my druthers, uh, I think the biggest thing I would want to add is is a kind of a meta game. Uh, I would want to add some persistence to it so that, you know. I mean, there are some classic miniatures games like Necromunda and and, Mord, and Mordheim and um, that that have uh, these battles where you know you, your gang faces off against another gang and then um, but and then there's persistence where your your guys start out as sort of these these kids and level up into these hardened gangers and they get better gear and they get better skills and stats and so forth and I, I think a uh, a metagame like that would really be fun for XCOM. I don't know. Um, what the future holds there. Uh, But yeah, if I could add something, that would be it.
0: Cool. Sounds fantastic. Uh, Hopefully someday we get to see that. uh, Yeah. As well as a lot more XCOM uh, in the future. Uh, Ananda, thank you so much for coming by and spending so much time with us and uh, sharing with us both uh, your cool new projects.
2: Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it very much. It was a great discussion. Thanks a lot.
0: You are welcome back anytime. I definitely need to... Get you and Bruce on a podcast together, and basically just open the mics and let you guys talk board games. Yeah, let me, let me give me give me the where and when. Yeah, anytime. All right, all right. So that's been three moves ahead. Uh, we will be back next week, as always. My thanks to my panelists for uh, making some time to uh, talk talk with me today, and my thanks to our producer Michael Hermes for cutting this episode together. Until next week. Good night. Bye all. Good night.
3: Toten Nacht.